The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to be back. Some of you are new. I may not know, but I've been gone for the last three weeks, and really grateful for the people that have been subbing for me the last five weeks. Really, I've been gone, with the exception of one Sunday when I was teaching. So it's really good to be home. And I thought it would be nice uh, maybe to take some questions, but also for us to reflect on the role of kindness in awareness practice. Most of you know, have been around and been practicing for a while and understand that the path that the Buddha that worked for him and then he articulated and offered to anybody else is this path of waking up. We're using these natural qualities of mind, these inherent qualities of mind, to wake up, to see what we're not seeing. And um, it's interesting, well, if it's so natural, why, why is it so difficult? You know, we've created a head of steam around distractedness, always thinking that whatever thought we might have, always feeling that that thought needs to be pursued, that image, that emotion. It's like we're postponing this simple practice of opening like we want to take care of all our problems first, but it's that exact idea that I have to do something that actually interrupts the practice over and over and over again. And so the tools, you know, the different teachings, they're just different skillful means to help us avoid missing the practice. It's like love, when we bring loving kindness in, it creates a space, a sense of patience, and a sense of inclusivity that disarms this tendency of my mind, and maybe a lot of your mind, to want to control, want to fix, want to figure out, want to get something. Loving kindness, in the same way that this balanced awareness or mindfulness, what we call mindfulness, which is really wisdom and awareness together. Loving kindness and this wise attention, this wise mindfulness, they're complete in themselves. Like I suggested in the guided sit, it's inherently satisfying. When the heart is feeling kindness toward things as they are, when the heart is opening and clearly aware that it's like this, that simple knowing or that simple connecting or including, kindness is a kind of including, it's satisfying. It's like that's how it disarms this tendency of the mind that thinks it needs to do something or fix something or compare or judge. We feel compelled to control and judge and work and struggle because we're not satisfied. The heart mind doesn't feel satisfied. But when the mind or heart is satisfied, then you see it's willing to be simple. But when the heart-mind is not satisfied, it feels compelled to be complicated and to struggle and to 
get somewhere. I've got to get to satisfaction. I, that means I have to struggle with the way it is. I have to push something away or reach to get something. So a lot of the practice is we're trying to, you know, it's always this chicken and egg thing with practice. We're always trying to touch or open to some sense of ease or some sense of wholeness or some sense of satisfaction or some sense of trusting in order to deepen that wholesome state. Another way we say this is that we always have to begin with right view or we always have to begin. This is a path of wisdom and we're developing wisdom, we're deepening wisdom, but we have to begin with wisdom in order to deepen wisdom. Like if I begin my pursuit of deepening wisdom from a self-centered point of view, like I'm the stupid person who can't sit still and gets distracted a lot and, you know, fidgets and uh, worries a lot and always thinks people are better than me or I always think I'm better than other people and I want to develop wisdom. Well, any kind of clinging to the notion that I'm this person who wants to develop wisdom is going to keep the mind from developing, deepening any wisdom. So the first thing we have to do is interrupt wrong view. And one of the easiest ways for us to interrupt wrong view, to replace wrong view in a moment of experience, is just to feel some kindness. Kindness is right view. Kindness is wisdom. And sort of two easy approaches to developing, to establishing wisdom in a moment, which we have to do over and over again. It isn't work that we had a moment of wisdom or a moment of right view at the beginning of the sit. Every moment we have to begin again with wisdom, with right view. And there are two easy ways. Everything else is complicated. Two easy ways. One is, like I said, a moment of kindness. Just simple, the heart opening. And it doesn't matter the cause for the kindness. As long as it's an authentic experience of the heart opening or the heart including or the heart accepting, it will work. That's right view. It's wisdom. And the other is, whenever the mind is seeing things as they are, it's wisdom. So that means what it sounds like it means. It doesn't mean that things have to be different than they are. It's just that the mind has to recognize it's like this now. So if your mind is like all over the place, then wisdom isn't far away. All you have to do is have a moment of kindness about how it is or have a moment of understanding it's like this. My mind's all over the place and it's like this. Both are what we call right view or beginning again with wisdom. And that's how we develop wisdom. We, we reestablish or rediscover wisdom, a wise way of being or a wise way of relating. And then we develop it by understanding this is right view <laughs> or this wisdom is satisfying. It feels right. It works. It's skillful. So all of that recognizing, like when we're recognizing the right view 
or recognizing that the mind is in balance or the heart is open. It's the recognizing the rightness of it, the skillfulness of it, that is the developing of it. That's how we develop it. And we do this in as many moments, like in a formal meditation period, let's say we're sitting for 45 minutes, so maybe, you know, maybe we have a hundred moments. You know, a moment doesn't last very long. So most of the time we're lost. But maybe we have a hundred moments in a sit where there is the, the heart is in right view because the heart is experiencing a moment of kindness, of acceptance, or a moment of understanding, recognizing. It's like this now. So clarity. We call that a moment of clarity, a moment of kindness. And I'm sure you're getting the point that they're not really different. And then, and then once there is that moment, then the practice of deepening that wisdom, deepening the experience of awakening, of being free, is just continuing with that wisdom, that wise view, that right view, that kindness. It's like not losing it for as many moments until it's lost, until the mind gets attached to the energy that comes with right view, and we start to take it personally, oh, it's finally working. <laughs> Great. We start thinking about the next retreat we want to be on. I mean, there's so many ways we fall off. We lose it because the mind either gets frightened, it gets attached, it gets bored. But then we just we can start again, either by recognizing where well, this is how it is, or by bringing in an authentic experience of kindness, of the heart, mind, opening and accepting. A long time ago, when my wife and I uh, went to a couple retreats with Corrado Penza, he's an Italian teacher who used to teach at Intent Meditation Society in Massachusetts, hasn't recently, in you know, the last several years. And uh, he used to talk a lot about affectionate awareness. That's how he talk about mindfulness, affectionate awareness. And he'd say things like, in stillness, there is a warmth. So we want to notice that, like when the mind is in balance, when the mind is seeing things as they are, just a normal, ordinary moment of seeing things as they are. So we're not putting a spin on the mind-body experience, but there's a simple clarity simple recognizing it's like this, then to notice the quality of warmth in that balanced, wise scene. There's a sense of wholeness or fullness or what we could call kindness or love. Because sometimes people think about this in terms of, well, there's two paths. You know, I'm a heart person. I don't really go for the wisdom. You know, I don't trust it. I think people get arrogant. It's people who do the wisdom path and people who are into the wisdom path, they think, yeah, love is good, but, you know, it doesn't really get you there, you know, and you just get attached to that gooey feeling and, but I think the more useful way to understand it, regardless of your particular type, you know, you tend to be more of a wisdom type, more of a love type. To see the wisdom in the love or to see the love, the warmth in the wisdom. So you're not, we're not confusing ourselves thinking there's two ways. There's just really one way. And whether we put it in terms of love or we use it, put it in terms of wisdom, seeing things clearly, 
you know, that's the job of a teacher is to talk in both ways so that regardless of a particular person's personality or mind type, they're going to find it useful. So anyway, as he talked about, as uh, Corrado Penza talked about this affection awareness, he, he would talk about, you know, the warmth, that one of the qualities is uh, the absence of rigidity or brittleness in the heart and mind. So there's a softness, an undescendedness. You know, this is what's meant by warmth. And so that's something we can be on the lookout for. We can check. Earlier in uh, May, I was on a retreat for two weeks with uh, Sayadaw Utejaniya, a wonderful Burmese meditation master um, who comes to the States every few years now. And uh, he would talk about um, uh, just the, the importance of recognizing, like recognizing what the mind is doing over and over again. And then checking the awareness, or checking the attitude. So we're just remembering that knowing is happening and we're checking the attitude. And this checking the attitude isn't meant to be judgmental like, am I behaving myself? Or is my mind, you know, being judging? To be, you know, judging or judging. The checking the awareness is an act of kindness. It's like, we're just, like a mother, you know, looking out in the backyard and seeing if the kids are safe. Or as we're sitting down, you know, to meditate or sitting down at any time, you know, we, we just take care of the body. We check it out. We just make sure the body feels stable and comfortable. So when we check our attitude, can have that same kind, like, how's it working? How's the mind working? How's the mind relating? Has it gone down a trail, you know, is the kid playing with something dangerous? And we find a skillful way to remove the dangerous thing, you know, and give the kid something safer to play with. And the same thing with the mind, when we check our attitude, like is the mind messing about in a way that's going to create suffering, stress for ourselves? Well, honey, don't do that. Remember, when you do that, you get all worked up. And then it takes a long time to let things unwind. Do you really want to do that? See, this can all be done with kindness, checking the attitude. It's part of that warmth. Another quality Corrado would talk about is non-judging. This is something we often hear in terms of mindfulness, that it's a non-judging awareness, an inclusive awareness, receptive awareness. This is from... Sharon Salzberg. She says, the basis of the Buddha's psychological teaching is that our efforts to control what is inherently uncontrollable cannot yield the security, safety, and happiness we seek. By engaging in a delusive quest for happiness, we only bring suffering upon ourselves. In our frantic search for something to quench our thirst, we overlook the water all around us and drive ourselves into exile from our own lives. 
we may look for that which is, uh, which is stable, unchanging, and safe, but awareness teaches us that such a search cannot succeed. Everything in life changes. The path to true happiness is one of integrating and accepting all aspects of our experience. So this is also a quality. We think of this as a quality of love, this fearlessness. You know, as we open, and uh, so we're instead of, you know, one of the things about thinking and getting lost in thinking, it's a little safe, even though the patterns of our thoughts and the emotional patterns, they're boring because we tend to repeat things over and over, but at least it's somewhat safe, it's familiar. But when we're more radically opening, accepting, then one of the things that we're going to come face to face with is that nobody's in control of the unfolding of the mind and body. You know, the way that thought and emotion and sensation and sound and sight, the way that it arises is uh, an expression of what's inherently, as Sharon says, uncontrollable. Our mind, and you might notice this at times, our mind, through the uh, sort of application of meaning, it tries to control this. Like, as we're having this uncertain, alive, unknowable experiencing, right, as this is all happening, we're also telling ourselves, like narrating to ourselves what's happening, and it gives us a semblance of control. But when we drop that narration, or when we're no longer confused by it, maybe it's still there in the background, the mind talking to itself, so to speak, but we're not confused by it, then we start to realize how alive and uncertain and unknowable and ungovernable everything is, the body, the mind, everything. And so to not judge, to accept, it's easy theoretically to think, oh yeah, I, I get that acceptance is a good thing, that non-judgment is a good thing. But when we're opening to how uncertain and alive and uncertain uh, and uh, uncontrollable everything is, we really want to get involved in that judging and controlling and defining and creating meaning, applying meaning to our experience. It's like a, a safety mechanism that we've grown, outgrown. It's like, as kids, we would tell ourselves all kinds of things, like our parents are always going to take care of us. You know, as we got older and realized our parents are a lot like us, you know, fragile, you know, ignorant, often human beings like us, we realized they weren't that trustworthy. But when we're little, it's really helpful to think our parents are really there, they're really, you know, they know what they're doing. In psychological terms, you know, it's said that initially, you know, the child doesn't distinguish between self and the parent or the caregiver. And, I don't know, maybe two or somewhere around there, I forget my psychology classes, but maybe some of you remember, but somewhere developmentally, the kid makes the distinction and then the parent becomes like a godlike figure. So now there's a certain separation. There's me who's completely dependent. And then the child gets really attached when the mom or the dad or the caregiver isn't around. They can actually 
freak out. Early on, when they're just a few weeks old or whatever, some kids, at least, you can pass them around, and as long as the, the adult knows what they're doing, the kid's fine. But then, once the kid kind of gets, like, this is my savior, you know, then they can freak out when that person isn't around. And there's not much you can do when they're fixed on wanting to get back to that person to console them. And so, you know, at that point, we have these stories like, this person is my ticket to safety, and without them... And it's the same thing with some of these psychological devices we're dependent on, seemingly dependent on. We think we need them. We think we need to apply meaning to our experience. So we think we need to sort of draw back from this open, alive experiencing of body-mind of the present moment. Like somebody's got to define it or somebody's got to make sense of it. Somebody's got to tell me what's going on. And so part of the non-judging is learning to open more directly to experiencing, to the aliveness of experiencing, but not not second-guessing, not imagining that the moment should be other than it is. We may feel like we're falling into hell. And then the thought might be, like, if we lose our practice, we might think, well, I must be doing something wrong because this isn't supposed to happen. But remember, it's not about what's supposed to happen. It's about being free, being open with what is happening, whatever it is. So the practice is a, a radical departure from how we're normally living. living. Normally, we're living to set things straight, you know, to make it safe for us. But as, a, you know, as somebody interested in practicing, we create safe time to practice not doing that, but just to let things be, to let the mind be, which is this, what is the mind? Well, it's an unfolding natural process. And what's the body? Well, it's also an unfolding natural process. Nobody's in control of the natural unfolding of the mind, and nobody's in control of the natural unfolding of the body or anything. So the non-judging, the acceptance, and the warmth is in the context of opening to this unknown, this uncertain unknown, and learning to trust it. It's like learning to trust something that's <coughs> we have to learn to trust something that is always uh, new and fresh and unknowable. He also talked about uh, the unitive quality of mindfulness, this balanced, wise, loving attention, mindful attention, wise attention, that it has uh, this uh, quality of wholeness or uh, not holding back at all, sort of full exposure. It's like we, we like the idea of unity, you know, of non-separateness, being part of the whole, but we, we realize, we don't necessarily realize that it requires that we let go of any uh, 
Like sometimes in mindfulness practice we have a sense of standing and a nice observation platform <laughs> and observing the breath or observing the body or observing the mind or observing what we're seeing or observing sound. We've got our sort of safe location. But the idea of unity or wholeness is we have to let go of any stance, including the stance of being the observer or the witness. We have to let that go. To be one with experience, to be wholly present, means we have to let go of any idea of being aware. You know, there doesn't mean there is not awareness, but the, we don't need the idea of I'm being aware to be aware. It's actually in the way. It's, it's another one of those relatively primitive safety mechanisms that gave us a sense of safety for a while, but we have to learn to go beyond it. We don't need to be dependent on being the observer. However useful it is at times, at other times we want to practice going beyond it. He talked about the non-superficiality, or the uh, not being superficial. So that's really the quality of interest. It's like, however real and alive, you know, however good it feels our mindfulness is, we want to continue being interested. We don't sort of rest. We don't assume we're there. Like, okay, this is what the Buddha was talking about, this kind of awareness. And it, because it might actually be a real step in the direction of a, a more wise, open, loving presence with things. But we, first of all, it's only in that moment, and there needs to be a continuity. But just the way the practice is, we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what we're, what sort of primitive defense patterns are still there that we can, the heart can let go of, can go beyond. So we have to stay interested in order to, to develop the continuity of awareness. And it's really the continuity of the awareness, sort of doing it moment by moment by moment, that reveals all that's extra and in the way. Like all the stances, all the defense patterns, all the greed and aversion that's still there in the mind, in the heart. And then the last point he makes is that the practice, this balance, this affectionate awareness is non-conceptual. Now a lot of times when we hear that we think, and this is endemic in Buddhist practice, we think that thinking is bad. But it's not that thinking is bad, it's being confused by thinking that in a sense is bad or is, in, is a problem. It's when we're taking thinking to be more than what it is. Thinking is a lot like sensation in the body or sound or sight being seen. It's just a natural process. The mind thinks, the ear hears, the eye see, the body feels, the nose smells, the tongue tastes. That's just what the mind does, it thinks. And the practice then, like to, to really have that more radical presence, loving, clear presence, requires that the mind, the heart, not be confused by the thoughting going on, the thinking going on. 
because that's what the mind is going to do. Sometimes it's relatively quiet, and, and of course that's nice, and we tend to want to think about how nice it is when the mind is quiet, and then we start thinking again. But even though it is nice when the mind's relatively quiet, in a sense the practice isn't about quieting the mind. It's more that the quieting of the mind is a skillful means for not being confused by the thought. You know, when there's a lot of thought, it's hard not to be confused by them. But when the thoughts have quieted down some, and they're maybe less toxic or less seductive, then it's just easy to see them, like I mentioned, just like we, you know how we can sort of settle back on a bench in a park, and you just see the sunshine going through the leaves, and the people walking by, and you're not really looking at anything in particular, it's just a play of light and form and color, and you're not really taking any of the visual information personally, you're just letting it unfold. And we can do that with hearing, right? Um, this last three weeks I practiced on Madeline Island, and so we were around water most of the time, Lake Superior splashing up against the rocks and, and uh, gravel. And so there's always sound, you know, in the wind. And, uh, you know, you can, the mind sort of, at first, you know, when the first few days, it's sort of like, is that an animal, you know, or is that is it wind, is that the water, is, is that some... And then la later, you know, the mind just relaxes with the play of sound. It just lets sound happen. It's aware, it's not forgetful or spaced out, but it's not trying to do anything. And it's not mad about the sound. It's like uh, initially, because it, it we, we were in this cabin, you know, and there was a big refrigerator and you have the nice natural sounds and then the refrigerator would go on. You know, initially the mind would like have a problem. Like, I prefer these sounds. These are okay, but no, not, not this sound. This is not okay. Over Memorial, I mean, there's pretty much nobody on the island. But, uh, I don't know, maybe it was Memorial Day weekend, we could hear some people at another cabin, and I think they must have been taken aside, because all of a sudden you hear them screaming, you know, jumping in the lake after being in the sauna. <laughs> yeah. And you can, like, have a problem with that. But after a while, it's like, it doesn't matter what's happening. It's just a natural play. And the, the mind might have thought, but you're not confused. Like, the mind's not confused by the thought, oh, that must be somebody jumping into the lake. Or that must be the sound of a truck on the highway. But the mind isn't confused, like it doesn't go anywhere with it. doesn't need to proliferate around that perception, around that thought. Oh, that's that. That's that. So we can have thought. Boy, my practice is really bad. Or my practice is really good. But we don't need to be confused by that. And this is an important thing to remember. So the practice becomes non-conceptual, not when thinking stops, but when there's enough wisdom present so the mind isn't confused by the thoughts that do arise. And the mind allows, the heart allows the thoughts to come and go, just like it allows sounds to come and go, and sights to come and go, and sensations in the body to come and go. I mean, so much of practice, like we, we did tonight, it's just being with the body. We use that anchor a lot, that object a lot, because it's such a good teacher. 
can we just let the sensations of the body be? That's why stillness, not an enforced stillness, like I better not move, because that's what the teacher said, but like uh, more of a skillful means, like let's just see if I can let the sensations in the body come and go, the pleasant, unpleasant, the neutral, just let that whole, you know, beautiful, wild expression of body sensations come and go. But just practice just being with it, being porous and empty and just letting the body feel. Because that's what the body does. It feels. The mind thinks, the body feels, the nose smells, the tongue tastes, the eyes sees, and the ears hear. And that's part of, like, so whatever sensations come and whatever thoughts about the sensations that come, we just let them come and go. That's the practice. And this is really, you'll see as you reflect on it in daily life and then in your formal search, you'll see that these qualities really make sense as, the, as like a definition of wisdom and also make sense as a definition of love or kindness. When we're really kind, we're accepting, we're not judging, we're not getting caught. I mean, if we're having a loving moment with another person, we're not caught in our thoughts about this person or about our love for this person. If we're caught up in our thoughts, we're not actually having a loving moment with another human being. And you can just see the difference, like where you're just really with another human being and there's that wonderful, natural exchange. May only last for a second or two. And when you start to think about it, it's not there anymore. Or when you get caught in thoughts about it. Now there can be some thoughts, as long as the mind doesn't get confused, like this is really beautiful. And if the mind doesn't grab a hold of it, doesn't get identified with the thought, then it won't interrupt it. But if we get identified, this is really beautiful, then we're going to start thinking about how we can make it last, why it hasn't been there before, all of which will separate get separated from that moment, that, real, that moment of freedom and love. So I want to leave it here so we have a good amount of time to hear from other people and also any questions that you have about practice that have come up that you'd like to ask. The appropriate time, so we have about 20 minutes. Yes, and please say your name. Good question, Jim. So Jim said that uh, he had a really good sit, a deep sit, and um, he noticed at some point in the sit that there was a choice uh, about getting distracted or not, sort of like uh, I'm imagining two roads, you know, a split, and like the mind could go this way or it could stay sort of being awake, present. And Jim then asked, you know, is that, is that a place of practice? to sort of see that choice. And 
and then ask, well, and would that, I'm not sure if you used the word controlling, but would that sort of be a way of controlling if you sort of were aware? Yeah. Yeah, and that's a really good question because it really draws out how wisdom works. It's not the practitioner who's needing to be wise. Wisdom is also a natural process. Just like ignorance is a natural process, wisdom is also a natural process. And so, as a practitioner, we're creating the conditions for wisdom to do its work. So, in order for wisdom to do its work, there needs to be clarity, kindness, in that moment where that choice arises. Like, the mind can take this path and think about something, or can maintain an awareness of what's happening. And you're right, Tim, if you feel like, I need to be careful at that moment, I need to avoid doing this, that's a, a limited way of understanding. A better way to understand it is to be interested in what wisdom will do when it sees this choice, this possibility of going here or going there. Being interested in what happens then, and it's kind of the dynamic between wisdom and ignorance. So in any moment of you know experiencing, there's going to be the force of wisdom with whatever momentum it has, and the force of ignorance or habit and whatever momentum it has. And they're going to be there. And one will sort of dominate depending on how much momentum the two have. And there's really not much for anybody to do about that except to be aware. So then we can have a real lesson. Like let's say in one moment you're there and you see the mind, like I did, what was I thinking about during the sit? Sort of about uh, 10 minutes before the end of the sit, I noticed I was thinking about something. There was some work I have to do at Common Ground, I think, uh, planning something out. And uh, so I noticed that. So as soon as you notice it, then you notice the choice. Like I could continue planning or I could sort of begin again with, like, come back to the body, for example, because that, that's sort of what the direction was for the, the sit tonight, just to recognize the body. And, um, and then in that moment, it's like we, we're learning. It's not easy. We're learning not to control, but to observe or to be awake to what does happen. Does the mind go back to the planning? And then what does that feel like? What's that like to be caught in planning? Because when we're actually planning, identified with the planning, there's tightness in the mind and body. Because we wouldn't be planning if we didn't think we had to. You know, we've got to figure this out in order to be safe, basically, in order to get what I want. So if we just continue to be mindful to some degree, we'll get that being caught in planning is stressful. And then if the mind, if there's enough momentum and wisdom isn't confused, there's wisdom present and it isn't confused by the impulse to go back to the planning. It just sees that impulse, that sort of gravitational pull as just something happening in the moment. You know, it's like a tugging, right? Like, you know, when you wake up from a dream, there's a sort of tugging to want to go back to the dream. Same thing. Like we've been lost in thought and then we're kind of aware of it. There's still that tugging, like wanting to go back to it. 
But we can see that that tugging is just what it is. It's just tugging. It's just that inclination to go back. And we don't have to take it personally. Like, oh, I must really want to think that. Otherwise, why would there be this tugging? We could say, well, there's just tugging because the mind was caught in that. And that's, that is the after effect of having been caught, is this tugging. And then wisdom not being confused by the tugging, it's aware of the tugging. And when that diminishes, it can come back and be aware of the body or whatever is predominant in the moment. And so we're really learning, like, when wisdom is predominant, then there's this sort of freedom that comes with it. And when ignorance or self-centeredness is predominant, then stress follows. And we'll learn either way. You know, we'll learn if we're observant of ignorance being predominant, and we'll learn if we're continue to be mindful when wisdom is predominant. You can't lose. <laughs> so it's subtle. You know, the tendency is to think, oh, i got to really get there and keep myself from thinking. And uh, that sort of muscular approach to meditation doesn't really work very well. Although, inevitably, we're going to do it. But when we do do it, like when we get in there and we're sort of judging ourselves for wanting to do this, to want to think more about this, we'll see that that's also stressful. You know, it's stressful to need to be careful. Because what we're doing is we're not trying to fix things or become somebody who doesn't get lost in thought. We're just trying to understand the nature of the mind and body. Like how this is a natural process unfolding according to sort of lawful sort of processes. We're just observing it, knowing it, awakening to it. And that's what sets it all free. We don't need a different life, a different mind, or a different body as much as we think that is so true. <laughs> if only I had a different body, if only I had a different life, a different mind, you know. But that's not what we need. We just need to learn from the life, the experiences that we're having. Like trust that they're the teachers that we need. That's the hard thing, to trust that. Other thoughts that come to mind? Questions? Yeah. Say your name again,
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks for the question, Tom. Did people hear? Did you not hear? Did you hear? You had your hand up, I just want to make sure you heard. Yeah? Okay. So Tom was asking about, and it's, it's, not, it's somewhat related to what Jim was saying before, you know, about like how uh, responsible are we for stopping unwholesome emotion, like you mentioned attachment, and being aware of attachment in daily life, seeing it coming up, and like maybe coming back to the body or, or doing something, trying different skillful ways to unhook or to stop the attachment and wondering, well, is that appropriate to want to stop the attachment? And I think, you know, yeah, it's appropriate to want to stop the attachment, but it's also appropriate over time to get more and more skillful about how we do stop the attachment. Because it's like any bad thing that happens to us, you know, when we're unprepared, sometimes the solution to stopping something that's bad has a lot of bad side effects. And it's just slightly better than what was already going on. You know, it's like, uh, you know, in the middle of the night, if, if something's going on, there's a, a big mess, uh, water starts coming in a window or, you know, there's uh, bugs in, and, and you're kind of half asleep you can do some really destructive things to take care of the problem. You know, you can trip over things, you can break things, but you're trying to deal with a real problem that you've got to address. But you're being really careless about it, or you're, you're kind of being really primitive about it. You're just sort of running on basic survival instincts, but not being very reflective about what would be the best way, the, the way that has the least side effects. So, there's two things we have to do. When we're going about our day and toxic emotions come up, we do need to address them as best we can. But that's one thing. It's just do the best you can. With whatever, whatever you've learned in your life works, try it out. See if it will work. But then we want to do another thing on top of that, which is we want to observe the side effects of what we do. So that's the continuity of mindfulness. It's not only being aware that there's attachment, but then be aware that so when you brought your attention, you gave the example of bringing your attention back to the body, I think, right, or to the breath. So then when you did that, if you continue being mindful, did you do that with fear in the mind? And then what was the effect of having fear, like being afraid of the attachment? And then what was the ongoing effect of returning to your, bringing the attention to the breath based on fear, motivated by fear? And like, if there's a side effect to using fear to get away from attachment, then you'll see it. And it will just sort of beg the question in mind, is there a better way? Like in hindsight, it's totally appropriate in hindsight when once we've sort of gotten some distance from the attachment to reflect, now would there have been a better way? than to sort of be afraid of the attachment. What would it be like, you know, we imagine, but what would it have been like to be, take a few moments to be interested in the attachment? Is the attachment actually such a problem as it first appeared to be when, it, when I first noticed it? You know, and you can even, sometimes we can bring things up that when they surprise us in the middle of the day, we just get sort of reactive. That later, when we're more feeling more safe and stable, 
we can bring that image or that memory or that emotion up again, and we can look at it in a more sort of direct way, seeing it more as nature instead of as self. Oh, that attachment, that feeling of being attached, it's just this feeling, this emotional feeling with these images. It's just the seeing of these images and this feeling. It's just this. Well, can this, what would that be like just to be okay with it and not have to go to the breath, but just to see it? I wonder how long it would last. Would it go away on its own? Well, well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Would the attachment go away on its own if I didn't redirect my attention? So this is what being reflective does. So on the one hand, we do need some tools because we don't want to just get swept away by toxic emotions or negative mind states. But on the other hand, we want to stay reflective about our strategies working and what might work better so that we're really we're discovering that ultimately awareness itself is the most powerful tool and we're teasing out a lot of the self-centeredness involved in fixing our lives which can be useful temporarily but has often side effects that are counterproductive because we can reinforce a sense of self like when we think attachment is bad, there's consequences to thinking attachment is bad. It's just what it is. But initially, it's a real step in the right direction to see that attachment is bad. There's a funny story where like Freud, I guess, told the story about one of his patients uh, who was having a lot of lustful thoughts and, uh, and Freud, you know, assuming that she was kind of seen him as bad, you know, asked her, you know, how is that? And she said, well, I kind of like it. So a lot of the time we like our attachment. We like our anger, you know? So it's a real step in the right direction to say, oh, wait, I don't want to get lost in that attachment. So we inevitably get in that place where we do see it as sort of bad, but that's a step in the right direction, but it's not the final step. We want to not get stuck there and thinking that negative mind states or painful mind states are bad, even though it can be a good step to recognize them as it is unwholesome. It does, if the mind does get identified, it is going to hurt. It's going to create suffering. Maybe time for one more question or comment, if anybody else has anything. Yes, say your name. question. So Jonathan asked about suffering, if you didn't hear him, and about moving into it and when is it skillful to move into it and when might it not be skillful to move into the suffering. And, you know, it goes back to what I was saying right at the beginning about right view. It's like when, when there's right view, when there's enough wisdom, then it's appropriate to move into it. But when the mind is more confused by the unpleasantness of the suffering, 
taking this, the unpleasantness of it personally, then it may not be so skillful to open to the pain, whether it's painful emotion or physical pain. Because if we're taking it personally, then it's going to trigger a personal reactivity. And then we'll be reinforcing that pattern of reacting to what's unpleasant, the suffering in life. So that's what we have to do. We have to assess how much wisdom is, like, is wisdom act, uh, present and doing its job, which is remembering it's just this. It's just this natural process being known. Or is there more that says, this is happening to me, and I don't like it, and it's not fair, and I want it to stop. Because if, it's, if it's, it feels very personal, then the first step might be actually to get some distance, to redirect the mind to something more neutral, or to gladden the mind, you know, like we bring to mind, even though this is sort of where the mind wants to go, we make the mind do something, think about something that brings a sense of ease and brightness and gladness and love in. We invite it in. Right, but ultimately, and there's some truth to that, but it's, the question is, what else, what's skillful now? Not what is ultimately skillful, but right now, what can the mind do that's skillful? Because that's the, Buddhism is entirely pragmatic. It's always about what can the mind actually do now that's skillful as opposed to unskillful. Not what we would theoretically like to be able to do. Yeah, theoretically, we'd like to be able to open to everything unconditionally and experience the freedom of letting things be just as they are. But if we could do it, we would have done that. <laughs> and uh, we have to practice where we're at. And if we're still taking things personally, then we've got to practice with that reality that this feels very personal. And a lot of people use their intellectual understanding of the practice, like the intellectual understanding of emptiness, in a wrong way. And they go, I know this strong feeling um, is impersonal. I know it's empty. It's not really me. So I'm not going to address it. But the thing is, in their actual experience of feeling it, it feels very personal. And the mind is contracting around it. It's having that pain is having its effect because the mind's identified with it. It's in a sense of dragging the whole mind-body down because of the identification. So we, we have to practice according to the density of the mind. If the mind is really enlightened and wise, then we practice mostly by just letting things be. But if the mind is really dense, taking things very personally, we have to practice as an ignorant human being. So we have to like take care of, just like a mom would take care of a kid, we've got to take the mind away from what's dangerous. And we need to leave it here. So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Maybe take a breath or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.